This episode is sponsored by the Jewelry Institute of America, located in Houston, Texas, serving the entire world. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving from world-class instructors. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. my friends. No news today. I've been very busy, so we're going to get straight to the interview with Diane Scalis. Her name looks like Scalise. It's pronounced Scalis. Having trouble? Just remember it rhymes with Alice. This conversation was recorded in the last hour of the last day of the 2023 FIGA convention. It has all of the noise and interruptions you have come to expect from this series of interviews. I will say, having not listened to this conversation for a few weeks, I was really happy with what I heard. Is this my best interview to date? Yes, I think so. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I enjoyed making it for you, so let's get to it. This is Diane Scalis. Last interview of the day, the one everybody's been waiting for. Uh, Gosh, is it getting louder? Sorry about that. Okay. Folks, you're in for a treat today. I'm talking to the wonderful and talented Diane Scalis. Diane, how are you? Just fine, thank you. So nice to see you here. I've been wanting to get you on tape for a while now, and so I finally got you cornered. Uh, how's the show going for you? It's been a great show so far. How many How many times do you think you've been to this one? My first show was in 2001. I did miss one show. So oh, really? that would be That's quite 20... a streak. Yes, and I missed that one show because I broke my arm. Oh, gosh. Cowgirling around? <laughs> I wish. Oh. I fell on the ice. Oh, gosh. Well, you, you are from a land that ices up, aren't you? Yes, sir. Uh, whereabouts do you live? Big Sandy, Montana. Big Sandy, Montana. Um, so that's uh, not ranch country. That's mountain country, isn't it? Mm. Mostly ranch country. Ranch country, okay. And we have island mountain ranges. Uh, there's the Bear Paws, uh, the Little Rockies. I want to say right up here at the top, uh, Diane is the only person I've ever interviewed that is actually featured in a museum. She is, uh, in, if you want to see her work, you can go to the uh, National Cowgirl Museum, is that right? National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame. And Hall of Fame in Fort Worth. And I was so excited to go there and see your name and, and watch the little video for you and all that. And I'm very proud of you. Uh, so you've been cowgirl around, what, your whole life? or? Yes, I grew up on a farm, and we rode horses more for recreation. Then I went to Montana, met my husband, who has a ranch in the Sweetgrass Hills, and then we rode to work. Oh, very good. And what did you do for work? Well, just work the, the cattle, and oh, I see. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, when did you realize that you wanted to become an engraver? My husband was building bits and spurs, and this was in 1986. And 
it's quite a job to learn how to build bridle bits and cowboy spurs, but they're not really worth much until you decorate them. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so he was learning to overlay them, and he knew a little bit about engraving, and of course I'd seen engraving, but never thought about doing it. And so he got a little equipment and tried it a bit and didn't like it. I would grumble about it, and so I said, let me go out in the shop and watch you. I'm curious. <laughs> and when I saw him make a couple of cuts, it was like, uh, you know, a moment where I just realized this was what I wanted to do. I said, let me try this. Had you, um, had, you had any artistic endeavors before that? I had started college in art. But I, I did not, I couldn't find that niche where I had the passion for it. I see. Uh, so I, I decided I didn't want to teach it and I didn't want to starve to death. And so I changed <laughs> my major and that was the end of my art career until I found engraving. Now, did your husband's uh, bit and spurt making, was that out of necessity or is that something he wanted to do artistically? It was, it was something he wanted to do artistically. And mm -hmm. so, you, and and it just happened to be that that sparked something in you that you you found something you love too. Yes. How amazing! Yeah. So, when you started out, what uh, what resources were there for you to learn how to engrave? I I visited with a gun engraver. Uh, I wanted to bright cut, but I couldn't find any bright cutters. I didn't know anybody or couldn't find anybody who could do this. So uh, I did find a gun engraver who put me onto the Meeks book, J Meeks, James Meeks. And so he said, buy this and read it, and that'll help. Well, that was a wonderful resource in many ways, but it didn't help with bright cutting. But I did learn more terminology and some techniques that might be helpful. My husband knew the art director at MSU in Bozeman, where we both went to college. And he knew a little something about engraving, so I bought a few gravers. Didn't know anything about sharpening, so it was trial and error. And I fought it a long time, but I was very <laughs> determined. I was going to ask, um, it's not, uh, clearly you, the two of you uh, had a lot of common sense and were handy to be able to make the bits and spurs. Yes. And I was wondering how, how that helped you when it came to learn how to sharpen your tools and... Well, if you're, sort of if you're used to building things, then you know about chisels and cold chisels and wood chisels. And so just a little bit of thinking, you could think through it um, to get you started. But there's a, quite a ways from just being able to make a few cuts and then making something that's aesthetically attractive. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. When you started, were you hand pushing or hammering or what were you doing? I actually started out with a Graver Max. Oh, really? And But the funny thing about bright cutting is there's a system to it that is way more intuitive if you push, if you hand push. Oh, okay. So I was six years trying to learn with the Graver Max. It wasn't until I started hand pushing that it started to click. Really? There's a way it works, probably because old bright cutters used to always hand push, and so there's just sort of a way that it... You get your gravers nice and sharp in the right angles, and it's rather intuitive. Do you, th do you think it has something to do with teaching you to cut wider and not deeper? Because, I mean, it I seems like you wouldn't be able to push 
push grave if you were cutting too deep, right? Instead yes, of, there, there, that's interesting that you would note that because there, the proportion, or however you might say it, there is a certain depth that you want for that width. And as you get wider, you have to go a little deeper because the pressure on the end of the tool if you get wider without going deeper, it wants to come out. So you, it's like a slow dive as you're making these cuts. But also you hold your graver hand steady and you turn your vise into the graver. So that gives you extra leverage to make longer, deeper cuts. Sure. Otherwise, you'd have to have a tremendously strong right arm to be able to push those things. Yes. Right? And, yes. And who knows where it's going to go because you, you know, I suppose you wouldn't really be in control at that point. No, no, and that's another, that's the popping of the chip, because right. there's no way to ease out, and that's also, a, the exit in a bright cut is as important as the entrance. Oh, really? And that's difficult to teach, you just sort of have to do it hmm. until you get it right. So, are you using uh, just ultra-sharp flats to do this? Yes. Okay. Is there a... Uh, a common size is there one tool that you you know this is the tool for the job and it's gonna <laughs> for me it's a number 37 flat for all my backgrounds are all oh. the, all the same all right well if you're a bright cutter uh, it's a 45 flat okay I had one student say if Diane was gonna do brain surgery she'd use a 45 flat <laughs> because students say how did you do this Oh, I did see that Pondstar guy earlier. I was wondering why he was here. So back to what we were saying about 45 flat. Are you using a flat? You're using a highly polished in the highly polished on the face and on the belly. Yes, sir. It has to be on the face too. And are you running any sort of a bevel on that, or a, a, a heel on that? Yes, 20 degree heel. I like a 45 degree face if I'm using power. 45 degree face, 20 degree belly. And then, uh, in Western world, you call it a belly. The underside of something is the belly. Um, and then you radius the back. You still have to have the belly, but then you add a radius. To Just to give yourself some clearance? Mostly to polish the, the back of the, the oh, belly, because the tool itself will have some micro scratches in it and if you you round that little back off then it really leaves a bright cut when you come out and it also allows you to control the exit a little bit better so for people who are not familiar with western bright cutting uh, a flat is most often used I, I know there are some people that use v gravers but Flats are, I think, the traditional way. Yes. And those flats are turned over onto their edge where they're almost a V-graver, mm -hmm. except for the fact that as you make your cut, you're rolling the graver down and making a wider flange cut, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And one reason it works a little bit better with a flat than a wide V-graver is... A V-graver then would almost have to be two flats, one on the right and one on the left, if you were to roll it over. You can only get as big a cut as your graver. Right. So if you have a small flat, you're only going to get a very small bright cut. The bigger the graver, the wider the cut you can make. I think this has been the most technical episode we've had yet. It's <laughs> excellent information. 
I would like to ask you, what drew you to bright cutting? Did you know right off the bat that's exactly what you wanted to do? Yes, yes. It was the Western thing. Yeah. It's it's belt buckles and it's it's brightening that silver. When I there was a period when after I'd read the Meeks book, I was. Uh, line engraving, I call gun engraving or single point engraving on the silver because that's all I could figure out how to do. And then I would take it to a few shows and I got, uh, I guess the common word now is dist. Oh. <laughs> because you can't, you, you just don't gun engrave silver. That's just not the right way to do it. And I thought, okay. Um, it's like, taught myself how to bright kit. And then, well, now it's very popular to gun engrave silver, and some people like that better. It's a different look, and it's new. And um, you see that almost more than you see traditional bright cutting. Traditional bright cutting is hard to learn. And so if you're a beginning engraver, you tend to choose the easier path with a single point. Your work will look better sooner than if you're trying to be, do real bright cutting. Um, There's a lot of physicality in your bright cutting yes. compared to uh, just right, like you are saying gun engraving mm -hmm. because it relies more on the shape of the cut that's being made, the depth of the cut, the sharpness of the tool, and just being able to hit those spots too, right? And put all these different cuts together correctly. And then on top of all that, should you learn all these things, then there's the liner, <laughs> right? Yes. And that is the most confounding tool I've ever seen in my whole life. The secret to a liner is you put a slight radius on the face. Right. Yeah, and that way you can turn a corner. Well, Mr. Jeremiah Watt handmade me a liner, and it wasn't until he made me one that I understood, oh, this is how it is used. I'm still not good at it, uh -huh. and I still bulldoze things with it, but it's, I get it now. I think it's really important to hand push a liner. Right. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't know how else you could do it, and as a matter of fact... When I first started, I was told that you pulled a liner. Oh. And that's how I was doing it for a long time. And I thought, I, I can't do anything with it. Like you were pulling a rake. And it just, it, it was bad. So I'm finally, I'm past that now. So. I'd love to have watched that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll start telling people that you're to pull them and then I'll, I'll film it for you. <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> moving on from that, so you wanted to become a bright cut in, uh, engraver, mm -hmm. and you did. And how long did it take before you started making a name for yourself in that area? A good six years before I, I could, felt like I was competent and and could show my work and and feel proud of what I was doing. Uh, then I took on some work with uh, Montana silversmiths. Several times a year they do a series of buckles like for the NFR, PRCA, AQHA, Appaloosa, of course. And those special buckles were sil sterling silver and gold and they were all hand engraved and their shop in-house couldn't handle these bursts of big orders. So they would have, they would send some to me. 
and I would get a box of maybe 30 of these buckles and then I would have X number of, of days to return them finished. I had to engrave in their style, obviously, it had to all look very similar, and then I had to hand push. They required me to hand push those because of that, uh, and they were wonderful to work with, but I, because I had so much work at a short in, that I had to do quickly, fairly quickly, I could do three buckles a day maybe on a good day. Um, they, it taught me how to do it not only quickly, but without a lot of drawing. I would draw some main lines, but then it became so that you memorized it and you didn't have to think as much about it. Everything kind of flowed together. and That was a really good period for me because I learned so much and it became so natural. And then I felt I had some. Oh, cool. Um, so how did you market your your work in the beginning? Was it at uh, Western shows, I suppose? Mm-hmm. We would go to rodeos. Uh, we would go to cowboy shows, uh, ranch ropings. Uh, cowboy poetry gatherings were big in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Elko poetry gathering, and uh, well, there was local ones. We did a lot of business up in Canada. It okay. Was, uh, the cowboys up there liked good gear. They used to say that Americans know the price of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they, up there, they liked fewer things but better things. And Alberta. we made a lot of good friends and did a lot of good Well, my friend there. from Alberta, who's a friend of yours, too, she's very refined. Anybody will tell you that. So, uh-huh. Miss Kelly McCray. Oh, <laughs> she's oh, refined? She's very refined. <laughs> she's hilarious. <laughs> One of, well, I think very highly of Kelly. So who were your contemporaries? Contemporaries coming up in that world of uh, Western engraving. I got started. Um, I think Jeremiah Watt was uh, had been had been doing this for a while when we when we got started. There, uh, Scott Hardy was starting out. Um, it should come to me more quickly. I'm Kelly. Right. Uh, some of the people aren't are no longer doing it, but. Um, it's all that comes to mind. Other than trial and error, did was there any way, or were there any books that you all could look at and to no. improve, or just happened across an old piece that you could look at and That compare, was or? a lot of it, and yeah. I'll tell you, a, a lot of the engraving that you could come across, trophy buckles and things, were poorly engraved. And I thought, I want my bright cutting not just to be the last thing you did to get it out the door. I want it to be something that stopped people. I want it to be, I have to buy this just because the engraving is so beautiful. I don't care what it says. I want that, to see that engraving. And that was always my goal, is to not have the engraving be an afterthought or wallpaper. I want it to be a real design element to it. Was there any problem marketing your, your work because other Western work was so poorly done? Like, when you see, if you're looking around online and you see a money clip from, you know, times past, and it's cut in a Western style, you can recognize it, but you, the the layout doesn't have any any flow to it. It was It's just really, really crude. Crude. And did you have a hard time showing people why your work was better than this other work and, and where yours improved on it? If people could see it visually, you know, if they could actually pick up the piece, they could tell. 
But when you told someone you're a bright cutter, they were thinking of some of that quick and dirty stuff, what I call quick and dirty. And uh, the reason I ask that is because I don't know, I imagine you've probably done leather work at some point too. No, actually I haven't. Well, you know, leather work is done on a spectrum. Yes. And everybody thinks that they can do it. And not everybody can do it. So I was wondering if it was similar to Western engraving. Yes. So. In the sense that there, you, there is very um, simple work out there, and then there's very exquisite work out there, everything in between. So did you bring anything new to the, to the Western engraving? I would like to think so. I think um, my design... Layout the way I go through scrolls, and I'm not sure I brought it to the Western engraving. But to me, the the beauty of the bright cut of bright cutting is that big bright cut. I want that to be the melody, and I want the cap cuts, the leaf cuts, the shading, all to be an accompaniment that showcases those big beautiful bright cuts. Now, it takes a lot of practice constantly to keep your bright cuts big and beautiful. And people tend to allow their bright cuts to get smaller and narrower. I hope everybody's having a wonderful time. And so we were just talking about what? Bright cuts. Bright cuts, and you were saying that they they tend to diminish as people continue cutting. Do you think they fatigue or lose focus, or what do you I think? I think they kind of lose focus, or they they. Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Maybe they don't realize the importance of that one cut, and and so in order to fill a scroll correctly with all the shapes the way they have to fit together. If you let your bright cuts get smaller, narrower, or more anemic, as I call it, then in order to make proportions right, your leaf cut gets bigger. Oh, I see. And so pretty soon it almost looks like one leaf cut, one leaf cut, one leaf cut. And to me, that's flat and without any um, special, oh, that's not the word. It, it just looks flat. Yeah, <laughs> just flat. But. But the, the hallmark of your cutting is consistent, big, beautiful cuts. Big, bright Shiny cuts. cuts. Shiny. Very good. Uh, so how many how many times have you made that cut, you think, in your life? <laughs> a million? Two million? I can do it in my sleep. But actually, I guess a, a better question is, or a better uh, lead on here is, so you, you did this sort of work. How many years was it before you started teaching this style? I went to uh, the Vegas show in Reno in 2001, and I, I was scared to death. Oh, really? I, I walk in this room, and I, I'm there. Rachel Wells was a, a master engraver at the time, but she was the only woman that I was aware of. I think she was the only woman at the time. And I walk in this room, and all these men in suits and what I say, round-toed shoes. I'm used to going to shows with men in pointy shoes. Sure. And, um, and they all looked very austere, and I was as nervous as can be. Uh, they ended, I found they were wonderful. Right. Wonderful 
group of guys. But anyway, they welcomed me, and I and I had my stuff on the table, and I went over. I wanted a microscope, and my husband said, "I'm not buying a microscope till you go over to that table over there, which was Jarrah's, whose equipment I used, but I didn't know them. So go over there to the Jarrah's table and try that microscope out." before we buy one. I want you to know that that's what you want. It's a big investment. So finally, about the last of the show, I went and sat down and tried it out, and they had a camera on the vice. So every time I made a cut, it was shown on this big screen. And so I'm playing around with the, the microscope, and uh, this gentleman came over and asked me if he could see it. My bracelet would come up in the camera. And he, this gentleman came over and asked me if he could see my bracelet. And I said, sure, showed it to him. And he asked me who engraved it. And I said, I did. You did. I got that a lot back I'm, then. Yeah, you did. Well, I apologize for them. <laughs> <laughs> he meant it kindly. And it was uh, Don Glasser. And he was just taken by it and... Uh, a little bit later, they uh, came over to my table, looked at my work, and asked me if I'd be interested in teaching. Wow. Well, talk about impressing the right person. Yes. So that established you, that got you involved with GRS, and then you went on to teach there for many years, right? Do you, I'm still and, even teaching today. there, yes, yes. And I'll tell you what, it was, if it wasn't for Manny Gonzalez, I would have chickened out. It was, uh, it, I, I wanted to share this because... Nobody was sharing bracketing. Like you mentioned, there was nothing written. And at the time, that's very frustrating. But I have learned, now that I've taught it, is you can't tell somebody how to do it. But you can show them how to do it. And so being able to one-on-one -on -one teach someone, I thought, i got to do this. It was so hard to learn. It was just ridiculous to have to take six years to learn how to do this. And with a little bit of guidance... Was, I mean, I can. Someone can become a good bright cutter in, a, you know, six months or a year if they're attentive. So, I, I suppose many, or I'm not going to say most because I have no idea what the numbers are. But many of the current Western bright cutters must owe their start to you and GRS. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite a, a legacy in itself, isn't it? Well, I'm. Well, I'm glad to have been a part of the renaissance, I'll tell you that. Well, I took my first class at GRS in 2012 with Rex mm -hmm. Peterson. Mm -hmm. And one day, as you know, they swapped the classes over and we got to come yes. over and you were teaching as well. Oh. And so I got to sit down in your class and I learned just enough to realize, wow, I don't know anything about this and I'll have to come back <laughs> to it later. So uh, I was going to, going back to what you're saying about the microscope, I, I suppose before that you had worked with an optivizer or did you work bare-eyed? Optivizer. Okay. Mm -hmm. How did, how did it, how was the adjustment to using a microscope? It seems like with as physical as that work is and, and especially with popping out the chips, did you ever have trouble where you oh. That's interesting. Now, I do not use a microscope to do much bright cutting. Oh, really? I still use an optivizer, but I have, uh, now I'm up to a number 10. Oh, okay. Um, my eyes are getting older. Not me, but my eyes. I understand. Uh, it happens to the best of us. Um, but I did, I, I was starting to inlay uh, into the bits and spurs, inlay wire and, and et cetera. And I had done a bridal bit that, GR, uh, that had 
someone had taken a picture of and blown it up. And so I thought, when it was super, when it was really big on a poster, I could see a little gap in my wire inlay Uh-oh. that I couldn't see with my optimizer. And I thought, if people are going to blow up my work, it needs to be perfect. And it, that meant microscope. Right. Yeah. And so I was doing more metal and uh, steel engraving. Now I was I was starting to transition into gun engraving, still on bits and spurs, but um, doing more gun style engraving. And do you ever um, do the Western bright cut in steel? I have. It's challenging. I, I suppose so. Now with the new uh, steels, it's easy uh, for gravers. These Glen steel gravers are good for that. Um, it is tough on gravers, but can be done. I think that's very interesting, and it's it's uh, just one of the things that makes you unique in this mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what else should we what else should we talk about? I would like to think that I have made it. Uh, I have opened some doors for other women. Now I will say that I'm not sure I would have been. Uh, achieved as much as I have if it hadn't been for my husband. He's not only been my cheerleader, but he's been sort of a technical advisor when it comes to tools and metals and general knowledge in that regard, jigs and fixtures. Um, If ever I needed anything, he was always stepping up in there to help me. And um, I find that to be a big advantage. It, yeah, I mean, you, you two seem to really operate as a team. Pretty much, and, and uh, you're mostly fun. it works. And your husband still makes knives. Yes. And you engrave them. Yes. I think that's I. I can't think of another instance of that happening amongst the artists that I know. So mm-hmm. I think that's very unique. And you come to a show, and you both know people. <laughs> you know, there's there's people that you both. For instance, my wife is at this show. I told her she shouldn't come because she'd be bored. Well. She, you know, she met everybody, and then she went to go have fun. So, anyways, um, what uh, what was it like uh, being one of the few women engravers? And I suppose I, it's still the case, although every day we have uh, you know tables after tables of, of ladies mm-hmm. here today. And uh, so, do, are things getting better in that respect? Or you? Oh well, my! Oh my! But it was a long time. I thought that uh, women would jump in more quickly, but it was, I bet it was, um, well, I had a few women in classes early on, but it didn't seem to grow much. I'd have one or two women in a class for 10 years, and then very gradually I'd have maybe three women or four women, and quite often now it's 50-50. Oh, wow. And uh, that's been wonderful to see. Wonderful. And I just, it makes me feel good to know that I've helped some women find this special. That, I mean, that is, uh, of course, not being a woman. That's a whole area that I don't have a good understanding of, uh, other than 
I think it's cool that that should there's no there's nothing about engraving that's inherently a male pastime or male. No, but women, generally speaking, don't have much of a mechanic, not mechanical background maybe, but we're not as used to working with tools, whereas most men have grown up working with tools. And if something needs to be done, they kind of know how to go do that, whereas a woman might, back then, just... I wouldn't think about getting a grinder or welding a fixture together or something like that. Mm. Um, and that's becoming a little more common now. I wonder how much uh, pneumatic tools have helped bridge that gap, too, oh. to take away some of the physicality. Yes, a lot, a lot. Um, I still uh, do a few things with a hammer and a chisel or uh, and punches you know you just there's still things you need to do inlay I, I do by hand but uh, you don't have to be as strong <laughs> if you don't have to push your way through a one inch bright cut and, and uh, there's an awful lot of muscle memory in hand-pushing anything, whether it's a, a, a very light cut or a, a nice heavy cut like what you're mm-hmm. doing. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's something I hadn't thought about, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that you were in the National Cowgirl Hall of Fame, and mm-hmm. how did that come to be, to be? Someone approached me. They wanted to nominate me as a uh, possible uh, member. And I thought it would be, a, I, I was excited about it, and I thought it would be another way to, to introduce the art to more women. But, of course, I was flattered, very flattered to be asked. And so you're nominated, and then uh, if you pass the nomination process, you, supply, uh, you submit a body of work. Tell them a little bit about yourself, what you've done, what you've accomplished, and... And then that goes to a review, and it takes a, quite a process. First, they, uh, you're accepted as a nominee. First, you're accepted as an applicant. And then if you get through that, you're a nominee. And then you may never get beyond the nominee process, but they'll choose four women usually every year to honor. And part of what they're looking for is not necessarily cowgirls, but women, Western-style women, who have made inroads in non-traditional areas, who also have shared and helped and brought things back to help other women promote, um, show them a way for them to go. Sure. And uh, so anyway, I submitted my work, what I had accomplished, and I think the teaching uh, was important to them, that I had taught and mentored. And uh, they thought that this would, that I was a likely candidate, and so I was voted in, and, and that's... Well, I, I actually, like I said earlier, I got to go to the museum and I saw the exhibit, and uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a fantastic museum, and if anybody's ever in Fort Worth, they should go and check it out. Um, Suffice it to say, I don't think you'd find anybody that would argue that you weren't worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. Did you ever, yourself, as a as a young child, think someday I will be in a Hall of Fame? <laughs> no, I mean, what never. an outlandish thing to think never. when you're a child, and here's that's just how your life turned out. And I think that's pretty marvelous. So. Well, you know, when I came to the first uh, fire, the Fega show, 
I was so impressed by the work, and everyone was so welcoming and so helpful. I had no pushback at all from the the people, the the other engravers, the men at the end of the show. Very encouraging. And when I learned about they had a master's program, I thought to myself, that's something I want to do for me. Uh, it's a goal of mine. I worked pretty hard, and I got it the next year. Really? Yes. Yeah. And, and I had been doing some gun engraving, so it's not like it was uh, a one-year thing for me. But, well, let's uh, talk about that process. So you found out there was a master's program, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the 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 parameter not parameters, but the criteria, criteria were at that time. Uh, I imagine it was just as tough as it, as it is now. Mm-hmm. What uh, what was the process like for you to to learn what the what you needed to do and, and get it done? It was more uh, casual, and when I say casual, it it wasn't as uh, lined out. There wasn't. They would say you need to do some lettering, you need to do an inlaid scene, etc. But I think it's it's better spelled out today than it was back then. And then you had uh, you had to submit certain number of projects, uh, one completed gun. Back then you had to have an FFL. In some regards, it was maybe a little easier. I think the quality of work today is so much higher than it was 20 years ago. Maybe not so much higher, but general quality of work is is better today than it was back then. Uh, but the guild was um, smaller and uh, didn't... Ha- how do I want to say this? They, they, they just didn't have the steps lined out as carefully as they do now. So there was a lot of guessing on my part about what they would like to see. So I just tried to do my best work. And what did you bring? I brought a knife that I engraved the blade. And I had the, the, the 92 Winchester that's in the museum. Okay. And I had some practice plates. For lettering, etc., and I think I submitted some of my braid cutting as well. And so they voted on it, and I think there was two other applicants at the time. Two of us got in, and there was a person who didn't. But anyway, they had a, a, a three-person panel at that time. And a triumvirate. <laughs> a tribune. A tribunal. A, tri- a tribunal. <laughs> I knew it was one of those try words. (laughs) I was thinking of, uh, anyway, yeah. And so then those three judged our work, the three of us, and and that's how that worked. So uh, what did it mean to you to get your master's? Oh, I was thrilled beyond belief that I had achieved this. I didn't expect it to change my life, but I did feel like I had accomplished something that that I that I I really wanted it badly for myself to say that I had done it uh, meant so a lot to me. I've asked five or six people that same question today, mm-hmm. and they've all given the same, almost the same answer. In that, none of us did this because we thought it was going to make us the master of the universe. We did mm-hmm. it because 
it was there. It seemed like a good challenge, and we took the challenge. Yes. And I, I, everybody sounds a little bit uh, not ashamed, but like they think it's silly. But it's it's not silly. It's the it's. A, it's the next step. Yes. And so it's like if you were in the Boy Scouts and didn't want to go through the, or the Girl Scouts and didn't want to go up the ranks or in the Army or whatever. So. That's a, not a bad analogy. It, it doesn't make me better than anybody else, but it makes me, I know I had achieved it. Yep. And there's yep. always more goals. There's so much excellent work. There certainly but, is. Mm-hmm. Um, what, speaking of work, uh, how do you feel? Do you feel like your work is still evolving? Are you still surprising yourself? Or, or is there anything on the horizon that you're working towards? Well, um, yes. Uh, for my personal goal is to create more defined, sophisticated Bellino scenes. Highly regard Marty Rubino's Bellino. I'm a big fan of his Bellino. It's a it's a style I find really attractive and not overly done and yet well defined. I just think he does a wonderful job. Uh, but I, you, when you when you put your work out for the public, they see what you've got on your table, and if they like that, they want you to do that for them. And so, in a sense, you get in a rut because they want what they've seen on your table and so you're doing more of the same thing. Sure. So every once in a while you have to take a break and do something fresh that is your own work that is not a commission and present that in order to get fresh work. Uh, maybe not fresh work, but a different style. If you don't want to get trapped in one style, Absolutely. You, you have to take a break from time to time. and. It seems like, and I think you know this, because you do so many different styles, that you want to you want to have a, a, a broad. I'm building talent. my I'm building my toolbox is what I think of. There it as. you go. Because, I want to be able to, in, right. and I love the way you combine them. And I this is what I want to do too. I want to have a little bit of different styles with borders and stuff. And there's a way to combine them that's very interesting. Yep. It can also be too busy and 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 not. You don't get the results you're really looking for, but it does add a lot of interest. Well, that's a, another thing I've been glad to hear today is that all these people I'm talking about, nobody feels like their work is in final form. Mm. Everybody is still trying and, and trying to learn, and I think that's very interesting. And now with as many different types of engraving that are coming in from the tattoo guys, and mm. everything is in a little bit of a flux right now. And I think in the next couple of years, I, I think styles are going to change just a little bit, but we, we'll see. With the sharing of the different techniques and with each other, with the stuff that you see on YouTubes and, and uh, like even your, not even, but your podcast, for instance, broadens everybody's ideas and stimulates their creativity. It's wonderful to see what's out there. I don't even really understand how, in a non-internet time, that they were able to get together and make this happen to bring a club together, you know? Have you seen the early newsletters? Well, I, I have <laughs> seen it, but uh, just to even find out who's doing this work. Yes. If It seems like you would have to be in the know to be in the know. Yeah, it's just... It, to try and find another engraver was just very, very difficult. And... 
I was fortunate uh, enough to come across a knife engraver by the name of Aaron Pursley, who went by the name of Duke. I don't know if you ever met Duke. I've seen that last name, but I've never met the person. He passed away this spring, but he uh, saw my work at a show, and he wanted to visit. And he was the first engraver that I had met who actually wanted to visit with me. Great guy, a rancher from Big Sandy. And I didn't live in Big Sandy at the time, but um, he said, I don't know anything about bright cutting, but if I can help you at all, love to help you if I can. Well, a few years later, he, I was living in southern Montana, Coal Strip, and he called me up and he said, I'm going to go to school. He says, I've been graving 30 years, but I'm going to go to school. Uh, down in Trinidad, John Bear Claw is teaching a class in inlay. I'm going to learn how to do it the right way. And I'm going to drive down, and I'll, my wife and I will pick you up, and we'll all go together. <laughs> I said, Duke, I can't do that. I got two small boys, and I, I can't just leave for two weeks. My husband comes home, and I, I told him. And he said, you go. I'll figure it out. You go. And couple weeks, well, it was a couple of months later, and we went down, and uh, it was the first class I ever took with John Bearclaw in advanced metal engraving, and changed everything for Yeah, me. talk about another person who's really uh, responsible for a lot of engravers out there. Yes, and he's had a huge influence in the Western world. Oh, really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Oh, yes. There's many highly regarded bit and spur makers who have gone through John's it was John Bearclaw who brought French gray to oh. the Western world. Um, when I first started French graying, cowboy gear, nobody had seen it before. And people would say, well, this is aluminum. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> of the color. Yeah, if you had never seen it before. I'd say, no, no, no. But in a couple of years, it took off because it shows that engraving so sure. well. And all of a sudden, the, the quality of... Uh, the decorating on bits and spurs just skyrocketed because of John Bearclaw. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I thought of a question I wanted, a technical question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I often hear people who Western Bright Cut talk about, uh, well, one person in particular, anyway, <laughs> well, let's say he was cutting a horn cap and saying, he was giving me a hard time because I can work so small, and he was saying, well, I have a hard time putting one scroll on a horn cap, much less putting four on there. <laughs> and do you, when you switch from Western style to gun style, do you ever have a problem with the with the scale of things? Do, do you find yourself making your gun style scrolls too large? Early on, I did. Uh, Switching back and forth is not a good deal until you're pretty comfortable with them. If I get a student who wants to bright cut, I don't want him to single point until he's got a good grip on his bright cutting. Um, But I used to, when I first started engraving guns, I would take a practice plate and kind of get in the groove, spend an hour and, and, and get back into that technique. And then when I would go back to cutting bright cutting, then I'd get a practice plate again and get back in that groove. And it was a couple of years before I no longer had to do that. But, yeah, it's completely different. And if you're going along with a gun 
job and forget yourself. <laughs> Have a moment where you're just blank out, and you're gonna be, make a big old cut. And yeah. Well, that's that's just something that popped in my head. So thank you for that. Answering is that is a good, interesting observation. Okay, so let's get to the good stuff, the nitty gritty. Oh. What, in your career, that you made, have you been most proud? Of? The rifle I did when I got my master's is still one of my favorites today. Uh, I did a more of a simple job on a Marlin lately that it was a Charlie Russell scene. Oh, cool. That uh, the client wanted on his Marlin. It was not a high-budget item, but he wanted it... Um, not fine work. He wanted it bold with fewer lines. And, and sometimes that can be a lot more challenging because you can't hide anything. <laughs> and I was really proud of the way that one turned out. Oh, cool. Very, very proud of that. And then um, I do some work for a Montana watch company, and they'll give me some challenges. And I'll have a case where I have to overlay gold, multicolor gold, set stones, engrave, and a couple of those have been um, projects that well, I'm they, very proud of. They make of. some top-notch watches. I they do. I saw them at the Dallas show the other day, and they look great. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's a that's an accomplishment accomplishment just being in league to work for them. So. And in bright cutting, I've got a set of spurs, and it was my husband's idea. He said, engrave them. I, they're full overlaid. And he said, engrave them like the pattern was too big for the spurs. Okay. So the scrolls would run off the spur and, and then come back on. And that was a challenge not only to lay out, but also to cut. Sure. How do you enter a cut halfway through a bright cut? That really... That was a very ch big challenge. Plus, when you get in the curve between the band and the shank, and because these were full overlaid, I had to do it right through that corner. Oh, wow. And uh, that, I'm really proud of how those <laughs> turned out. Well, that's good. I'm glad you've got so much to be proud of. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the other side of that coin is, surely at some point something hasn't worked out. Is there is there anything that stands out in your memory as a total disaster? <laughs> Well, it's been a while since it's been a total disaster. Um, there has been a couple of times where my vision, I should say twice, my vision of what I thought the client wanted and what he actually wanted didn't match. And I personally, I consider that a disaster only because I was not, I, I just, not that I, I didn't disappoint the client, but it wasn't what he was wanting and I have learned to handle that part of the business better and I will spend more time drawing and cutting perhaps a practice plate um, for instance this uh, key fob that I did was because I, I thought I knew what the client wanted but I wasn't quite sure so I said, you know, let's just let me do something and have your approval so I know that we're seeing the same vision. And that has helped me tremendously. Communication can be uh, a real, a real uh, uh, roadblock in this, in this, it can uh, be. In this endeavor. My, my favorite example is to say when, when my husband and I moved from an apartment into our first home, 
he said, "This has this this new home has almost has as much counter. No, how did he put that? This, our new home will have as much counter space as you have. You'll have a lot of counter space like you do in our apartment." And I looked at my husband because we had 18 inches of counter space in the kitchen <laughs> in our apartment, and I thought your idea of a lot of counter space and my idea of a lot of counter space yeah. are two different things. Sorry, you might want to cut that no, out, no. but well, um, y- yes, you have to. What you call American Scroll or what I call American Scroll is not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, luckily these days you can just say, hey, send me a picture of what you're talking about. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I don't, I mean, I don't even know that all of us in this room call things the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I use flare cutting and, and bright cutting interchangeably, and people correct me all the time. They're not. And I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you do. I don't care. <laughs> And when you're building something, too, I'm doing a bracelet, and they want um, a certain shape or a certain edge, or they want a certain flower, and I th- they might say, I want some roses. Well, is the rose I see the same as the rose you yeah. see? So I draw it out. I draw it to size. Uh, I do as much detail as I can. They- the client can approve, or at that stage, it's very easy to fix any miscommunication. Well, I think I think this is the first time this has actually come up on the podcast, the communication part of the job, and, and that's something maybe in this next year I'll have to focus on a little bit more, because it's very important. It can make or break the whole thing. It can make or break your relationship with that customer. So that's I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're coming to the end here. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're coming to the end of the show. And uh, uh, is there? Do you have any advice for someone who is starting engraving this afternoon or tomorrow? Or you've probably heard this before, and I don't mean to sound corny, but enjoy the journey. Well, I think that's good advice. Enjoy that's why we it. hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. It is. You got to enjoy those. And when you when you make a mistake, when you mess something up. When you think of fixing it, you're teaching yourself things. Now you know how to fix that. You know how to, if, if you're fabricating a piece of jewelry, if you are adjusting a scene on Bellino, if, if you mess something up, learn how to fix it, and now you're even better. Absolutely. Well, that's, mm-hmm. gr- that's great advice, too. Um, so we're going to wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the wonderful and fabulous Diane Scalis. If you're smart and you want to go out and learn uh, Western Bright Cut, I would get on GRS's website and sign up for Diane's class. Is it full this year? or you? I am actually not going to teach a Bright Cut well, class not, this year, we'll, but next year. We'll cut this part out. So, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. But I do have a DVD. Oh, well, tell us about that DVD. I have a DVD that I put together that is my five-day beginning course, and it is takes you through all the steps of right cut engraving and it has all the practice patterns on it it's four and a half hours of high definition and it's exactly what i teach in the class during the week oh wow that's great Mm -hmm. i'm glad you brought that up so Mm -hmm. uh, if you're out there and you want to learn western bright cut you can get diane's dvd or next year you can sign up for her class at grs diane thanks so much for being with me i'm glad i finally got you on tape so we'll see you later thanks
What a great show. I want to thank Diane and all of the other artists that I interviewed at the FIGA convention. I hope to go back next year and record some more. I'd like to thank my listeners from all over the world for your support. As always, thank you to Engraver Hand for the show's music, and I will see you next time.